Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, your host. Joining us from the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., Ed Luce of the Financial Times, David Sanger of the New York Times, nearby in beautiful Alexandria, Virginia, is Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University, and in California, en route to the United Kingdom, is, of course, holder of the tiara of optimism, <laughs> Corey Shockey. Now, Rosa, while the rest of us were taking you know, stock of America or going on vacations to Hawaii and avoiding nuclear attacks and those kind of things, you seem to have made the choice to go to Turkey. Um, and our, our, our listeners missed you last week because you were in Turkey. And I think we need to start with your saying, why were you in Turkey? <laughs> well, well, David, I was on a very important mission in Turkey. Um, I was uh, part of a delegation organized by the Center for Liberal Strategies in Bulgaria and funded by several very prominent uh, international and U.S. foundations to investigate the role of hypocrisy in the liberal international order. So I was on a hypocrisy fact-finding mission to Turkey. And um, naturally, it won't surprise you at all to hear that uh, hypocrisy fact-finders have to travel business class and and stay in uh, five-star hotels. Um, because that's, you know, part of the mission. Um, and uh, so we were running around Turkey asking Turkish intellectuals and political leaders to talk to us about whether they thought there was hypocrisy in the liberal international order. Rosa, well, let, let me, me make sure I understand this. You had to leave Washington, D.C. to find hypocrisy? Hypocrisy never <laughs> sleeps, David, and hypocrisy <laughs> is worldwide. I'm well, what shocked, I, what I, shocked to find out hypocrisy <laughs> is going on in politics. Yeah. Well, I want to well, know so the, the more why serious intellectual we... question. The more serious intellectual question at the root of this uh, trip that I, I do recognize is is a little bit embarrassing to have to acknowledge uh, is whether the liberal international order, precisely because it it purports to be values driven. Is it more vulnerable than sort of previous forms of international order to charges, justified or not, of hypocritical behavior on the part of the of powerful state actors and international actors? Um, and you will not be surprised to hear that the uh, Turkish Turkish uh, uh, representatives to whom we spoke were were fairly unanimous in asserting that the three quarters of the hypocrisy in the known universe uh, uh, exists on the part of uh, Western actors. Well, before we get a little deeper into this discussion of hypocrisy, which we are all well qualified to discuss, how did you get picked as an expert on hypocrisy? What what have you done that's hypocrite. hypocritical? Pardon yeah, me? no, I'm a, a, a famous hypocrite. Yes, and, and my, <laughs> my eminence in global hypocrisy is known far and wide. 
<laughs> I think her main big... qualification was that she participates in deep state radio. And oh, Turkey is, of course, the home of the the actual real, not kidding, deep state. Well, yeah. So what do you see in Turkey? Well, it, it was it was fascinating. Um, obviously, as as our listeners uh, no doubt know, Turkey uh, went through a coup about a year and a half ago in, in July of 2016. And uh, in the wake of the coup, President uh, Erdogan's uh, administration has cracked down on dissent. Um, the, the theory of the Turkish government, and I, and I should say I think this is a theory that is shared by many members of the Turkish opposition as well, uh, is that the coup was, was planned by uh, supporters of this Iman Gulen who lives in Pennsylvania, of all places, um, and who had created a sort of cult-like network of followers uh, who embedded themselves in the Turkish military, in universities, and the judiciary. Uh, and so Turkish President Erdogan's response to the coup um, has been to essentially fire uh, thousands upon thousands of, of university professors, school teachers, uh, civil servants, judges, uh, et cetera, military officers, and to jail quite a large number of them as well. Uh, causing a tremendous amount of international criticism to which the Turkish government tends to respond by saying, uh, number one, none of you take seriously the fact that this coup was a threat to a democratically elected government. Uh, number two, you don't understand this network is is not in our imagination. It's actually real. And we're really mad at you for, for being skeptical about that. Uh, and number three, uh, we're trying our best and we are going to eventually, sooner or later, make sure that there is due process for all the people who've been dismissed or imprisoned. And number four, you guys are more hypocritical than we are, so drop dead. Well, I have to say, um, I, I take offense that we're more hypocritical um, than anyone. I mean, that we're, you know, that anyone can hold a candle to our hypocrisy. <laughs> Um, Ed, uh, you come from a very hypocritical country, uh, <laughs> but it's not a shit house. It's not a shit house. Sorry. Well, well okay. let's, let's slow down here on that it's, question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Parts of it are a shit hole. Shit house does, uh, doesn't come into it. I am dying. I am dying. Sorry to interrupt David, but I'm dying to find a segue here to ask Corey, what her experience of my my um, wonderful country of birth has been, because my suspicion is, since moving there, she spent about twenty four hours in the country. <laughs> is that is that a, a roughly correct guess, Corey? So I actually have not yet moved there. Oh. I start my new job at the IISS on the first of February. Yeah, she's in language so training am... right now. <laughs> she's in language training, <laughs> intensive. <laughs> I'm prepared to help you with that, by the way. Uh, uh, that offer stands. <laughs> Sorry, David, I interrupted your question. No, no, I'm, this is important. People, people, people want to know this stuff. But, you know, the, you know, Gulen, uh, not Gulen, Erdogan, this uh, uh, recently uh, said, uh, for example, that he, uh, he, he would drown the, P, the border patrol people that were being trained by the U.S., the Kurds that were being trained to do border patrol in Syria, um, which seemed a little harsh. 
Um, and in fact, he There's seemed... not a lot of swimming pools right in that region, I, I have noticed. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, how would he do that? But but it does, you know, it, it comes, I, I note, at, at the same time as a number of other leaders of the Erdogan ilk are kind of acting out more and feeling that they can do so with impunity. Uh, Duterte is is in the midst of a press crackdown, obviously. Uh, Putin's been on this road for a while and so forth. And I'm just wondering, you know, you've written about um, global trend and future of liberalism and 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 so forth. And I'm just I'm just wondering, do you think that we are seeing a point of inflection, if not in hypocrisy, then in um, in 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 authoritarianism and that whether the U.S. has something to do with it. So, um, you know, one of the supposedly attractive things about Trump to to people who support Trump um, is that he's not a hypocrite. Is that you know he speaks um, he speaks plainly um, and unequivocally, which of course people mistake for speaking accurately, an entirely different thing um, to speaking unequivocally, and that uh, and that Trump is therefore a very refreshing new voice. Might be crude, might be nasty, but at least he's not a hypocrite. At least he doesn't sort of get lawyered up every time he says something. Um, and that clearly finds a great echo amongst um, a number of Americans and non-Americans who find that um, who find that refreshing. Uh, the the cost to that um, uh, I, I think is incalculable at the moment. I mean, you, you mentioned Duterte, Erdogan, Putin. Um, you, I mean, I, I could go on with a long list of leaders who now have adopted Trump's language who um, brand domestic critics and, and independent media as fake news uh, organizations, who use threats to the sort of personal security of, of, of regime critics in the same way Donald Trump does um, in the United States. But my, my favorite um, example of how those kinds of, of strong men around the world are, are reaping the age of Trump is... is Putin and Trump's first meeting last July in Hamburg, um, when, you know, it was a couple of hours together that famously was only one aide there, and there's no download of the actual meeting. But before the meeting, um, and David, I think you were there, um, or after the meeting, Putin points to the media, and he looks at Trump and he says, are these the people who are hurting your feelings? And uh, this sort of tone of mockery, but also menace, um, in in Putin's comment, really, really to me captured uh, all kinds all kinds of potential compromat um, that that Putin might have been implying, but also real contempt for a man who's railing against the media but hasn't done anything that that Putin's been able to do against media critics, which is sometimes lethal. Um, you know, they 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 get shot, they they have accidental deaths. Um, but Trump boasts on Putin's behalf about this. He says, look, uh, he, he expresses open envy um, for the kinds of treatment P- Putin is able to mete out to the media. So what is the, uh, what is the price tag to this? As I say, it's incalculable. Um, but for the president of the United States, the country that has upheld these values and created some of them, um, I think it's a terrible, terrible cost, and it's going to take a long time to undo. 
It's interesting that Jeff Flake, the um, soon-to-retire Arizona senator, has chosen uh, a day, I think the same day the president's planning to hand out his fake media awards, to go out and give a speech describing what the commonalities are between the way Stalin dealt with uh, media issues and the way the president from his own party is dealing with them. The, the, the question is whether or not – how seriously you can take the way the president has denigrated the media. Um, obviously, as you said, Putin steps off and makes sure, make sure that reporters disappear. Um, president Trump so far has been doing everything he can to fuel a lack of trust and that is the way – the reason that he uses fake news to describe anything with which he disagrees. But I wonder whether – and maybe this is just us living in our Washington, New York, Boston, Alexandria, Virginia, Silo and Palo Alto bubbles, uh, whether whether or not um, uh, the rest of the country at this point has begun to sort of catch on to how ridiculous the president's cries of fake news have been. I think they resonate less and less over time. Well, I think there's a flip side and, and Ed brings up a great point which I don't think has really been made uh, as clearly as it might be, which is that the Trump brand is I'm plain spoken. I say what's every on everybody else's mind. Uh, but then in fact, he's not plain spoken. He's the opposite of plain spoken. If the Washington Post has identified 2,000 times he's lied, uh, then lying is coloring that. And if he says things that um, – uh, he doesn't believe or represent, you know, views that aren't his views uh, that are not exactly lies, but are distortions that compounds it. So, you know, Corey, as I look at this, I mean, the reality is that the ultimate hypocrite is the one who claims to be plain spoken and is lying all the time. And isn't that the situation now with Trump? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I the president. It lies so frequently that uh, you can't believe anything he actually says. And that's the starting point. And we need to take responsibility for the fact that this is who we elected president of the United States. Um, and the I really love the work of Eric Liu and Citizen University to remind us all that we have the power to change this. And we actually need to engage ourselves in organizing people to register to vote in supporting candidates that aren't as divisive, right? Like President Trump is a disaster for the country and we need to make sure that in the time that he is president, that we cheer good journalism. Thank you, David. Thank you, Ed. That we are active in building civic uh, virtue. Thank you, Rosa, police officer. Um, that we that I'm, we... I'm just waiting for some thank you. Like, <laughs> that we shoveled that we shoveled our front walk when it snowed or something like that. No, we're no, thanking no, you for no. moving to New Jersey. <laughs> no, for, for ensuring continuity of coverage during a, a nuclear strike of, of deep state radio. Of seriousness. Thank you, David Rothkopf. 
as we address these challenges. Because President Trump, this business about the fake news awards is so disgraceful. President Trump is actually engaged in disparaging, discrediting, chipping away at the at the very institutions of civic society that hold our government's feet to the fire for our public. And we all need to say repeatedly, loudly, and with active work to the contrary, that this is bad for the country. Yeah, well. <laughs> Have I been clear enough, David? <laughs> I think don't no, beat around the bush. But I mean, you know, the fact that the president of the United States is going after you know, the media, which is an important part of democracy, uh, and the Justice Department and the FBI as a part of the Justice Department and the CIA and the independent judiciary. Uh, oh, he the is an aspiring Erdogan or Putin. And the only thing that prevents it is the American people have tools available to us in the courts, in the media, in the other branches of government, in our elections, in how loudly we reject what he's doing. We have powers that people living in authoritarian societies sadly do not, and we need to use them. Well, you know, speaking of hypocrites, I think that's a, become a, the theme for this episode. One of the particular groups of hypocrites out there is all the people around Trump who enable him by being quiet or, or were, you know, there was this strange group, Rosa, of people who were actually in the room when Trump said shithole. Trump bragged to his friends about saying shithole. Uh, people in the room said he said shithole. There may be some dispute of whether he said shithole or shithouse. But then, you know, Senator Tom Cotton and Senator Perdue and the head of of the Department of Homeland Security all came out and said, well, I, I, don't know. I didn't hear that. I don't know if I heard any of that stuff. It's disgraceful. And, and <laughs> yeah. what, what is going on? I mean, do these people think that, you know, they can, and, you know, that they, that they have no responsibilities, that they're showing loyalty to their boss? Because it seems to me their boss is us. I think that's part of it. I also think, though, that as you know, we've talked about this in our last episode a little bit, that they basically may share his views minus the word shithole, you know, that, that, and we've heard apologists for Trump say over and over, you know, look, it's, it's the, the point here is really that we need to make sure that our immigration policy is adapted to take people who can contribute the most to our country. And that's not racist. You know, I'm just pointing out that it just so happens that Norwegians are all awesome it's that, you know, that, that there's a there's a significant segment of the American population that agrees with that, that might say, oh, yeah, he shouldn't have said shithole. That was really rude, you know, and well, maybe he didn't say it, but, you know, people are just jumping all over him. But, you know, isn't it totally reasonable for me to think this thing? Um, you know, so, so so I don't I don't think that they were shocked. I think that they may have been shocked by the language, which, you know, Trump Trump, one of the many ways in which he, you know, violates sort of old-fashioned American political norms, uh, including those held by, by on, the, on the far right, is his <laughs> willingness to be crude in public and unapologetically so. So I think that's the only thing that was likely to have shocked them. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I did want to return, though, before we completely abandon hypocrisy and, and, and foreign affairs. We will you know, never abandon hypocrisy in foreign affairs <laughs> on this show. <laughs> but, but, I, but I do think, you know, there there is a relationship um, between, more broadly, between what the U.S. does and, 
and, and what other what other Western countries do as well, of course, and the degree to which it emboldens uh, authoritarians or allows them to to offer what to their own constituents justifications for their actions. There's a relationship between what we do that is perceived as hypocritical, which then becomes an enabling narrative for repressive things that they do. And I, and I think, you know, Turkey is a case in point. You know, one of the things that the Turks are, are justifiably very, very upset about uh, is that the United States uh, support for Kurdish forces inside Syria, from the Turks' perspective, the Kurdish forces in Syria are led by the exact same people who lead the PKK uh, the Kurdish organization inside of Turkey, which the U.S., the European Union, and the United Nations have all designated a terrorist group. So when the U.S. arms the Kurds in Syria for for various short-term expedient reasons, which nobody can actually figure out since our Syria policy makes no sense anyway, uh, from the Turkish perspective, the U.S. is basically saying, yeah, Turkey, we don't actually care about your security because we know perfectly well that these weapons are going to end up being used inside of Turkey um, that and similar kinds of things then enables uh, people like Erdogan to throw up his arms and say, they, A, they, A, they hate us, B, they're totally hypocrites. Uh, so we're on our own, guys. And number one, that means that we need to crack down on the other people internally who hate us. And let's not be stopped by Western arguments about the importance of human rights and the rule of law, because we know that they don't mean it. They're only kidding. Look at their look at Donald Trump, et cetera. Uh, and number two, it means that we need to stop looking to the United States and to Europe for for our major partnerships. We need to start looking to Russia. We need to start looking to Iran. So, so we are, are the 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 incoherence and hypocrisy of our own foreign policy, and the appalling hypocrisy of the kinds of public statements coming out of Washington right now, are actively pushing some of our former allies towards autocracy and towards our adversaries. Yeah, although to be honest, Erdogan began that journey long before Trump arrived in office. He, no, he absolutely, absolutely. But I, but, but, I, but I think it, what it becomes a sort of additional enabling narrative that we make it impossible for ourselves to say with any credibility, hey, Erdogan, that's not the way to go at this point. Well, that's true. And I would like to turn to David and to Ed as guys who are on a regular basis Talking to people who are in the Trump administration, some of whom you would say, well, they're good guys, they understand, they're just doing the best that they can, none of whom feel any compulsion to speak out or take action or draw a line um, with regard to the behavior of the president. They don't in Charlottesville, they don't with shithole countries, they don't with uh, threats of nuclear war. There just doesn't seem to be anything to get any of these good guys and I don't want you to reveal the names of people, but there certainly have got to be people that you talk to who are in the government, who you think are good guys or good women, who are not, don't feel compelled to take action. And I'm just wondering, what do you think is makes them tick? Well, a good number of them will tell you, and you've heard this such a familiar line, and you hear it not only in this administration, but a lot in this administration, is I'm here to serve the country, not just the president. And you should imagine how bad it would be if we didn't have these checks on what the president can do. And you know, a, a good example of this would be uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis, who is the one who I think has most managed and most brilliantly managed to keep some distance from the president and yet whose 
um, role in in the office. We are deeply um, uh, thankful for because it appears that he's the moderating influence on a number of issues, but most notably North Korea. And if you read the Times' account, fairly lengthy account, of the military preparations that are underway in case there's a military conflict with North Korea, it's clear that both there's both prudent planning going on here and a way for the defense secretary to say to the president, hey, we're doing all of the things that you want to do to sound and look tough and to be prepared in case the worst happens. But here you've got to combine that with all the ways to avoid having to go use this. And it's been a rather brilliant move. So yes, we would we feel better if we had more members of the cabinet standing up and saying this is awful and leaving? Well, I can certainly think of several members of the cabinet who can and should do that. And I can think of several members of the cabinet who probably are silently cheering on the president with every uh, outrageous utterance. But I can also think of a few where we'd say, nah, we really want that person to stay. Well, there can't be that many people, Ed, who we really need to stay. And isn't <laughs> isn't there isn't there a point somewhere in this where standing up actually has a kind of a chilling effect? I mean, you know, part of the problem here is that the GOP leadership on the Hill and people who are willing to work in the government and so forth are enabling this train to continue on down the tracks. Yeah. And they're not standing up. They're not stopping. They're not saying we need to hold this guy accountable. So that's exactly um, where I would take your question is the people we need to be standing up are the elected representatives on Capitol Hill. I mean, you know, there's a much more invidious situation if you're working for the president, particularly in a national security related role um, in, in criticizing your boss and keeping your job or at least being able to do your job in the way you did before you criticized him. I, I'm sure many of them have spoken up to Michael Wolf <laughs> um, uh, for what that's worth um, and and helped form the narrative for Fire and Fury. Uh, but the ones we, we should be looking to uh, are on the hill. As regards, um, as regards whether all of them disagree with Trump calling Africa and other countries a shithouse, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't wish to sort of, I don't know what the opposite of the tiara of optimism is here. Is it the sort of um, nose ring of pessimism or something wow, like that? Wow, no, it's um, the, it's the heavy crown of uh, entropy. Yeah, heavy crown. crown of entropy. I don't wish to uncharacteristically uh, seize that crown, but just to wear it for a second. You know, Trump began his campaign. It took off two and a half years ago because he called Mexicans rapists and criminals and um, and other things, drug gangs, um, which is arguably a way worse comment than calling countries shitholes. Um, it is actually branding the people in America's neighbor uh, sort of criminal, racially criminal people. Um, and his campaign took off for that, for, for partly for that reason. This was an example of the inverted commas plain spokenness um, that, um, that people saw in Trump. And I've no doubt that there are people in his administration who might dislike the profanities, um, uh, but who, who share the sentiments. And General Kelly, I suspect, may well be one of them. I mean, uh, you know, his response to Charlottesville and his discussion of um, the gold star parent, the controversy over the gold star parent, 
and you know there being you know equal points to both sides of the civil war would suggest that he does share um, Trump's worldview. Uh, if if we want people to stand up, it has to be elected Republican senators. Um, that's that's how the founding fathers designed the system to work. It is a different branch of government. It should be a check on the second branch of government. Unfortunately, uh, what they're doing is trying to pack the third branch of government with as many pliable judges and unqualified judges as they can so that that does not act as as, as, as effective a check at the judiciary, namely um, as, a, as an effective check in the future as it has done in the past. So uh, far from, you know, far from expecting them to stand up, I think they're trying to make the system less effective to, to further enable Trump. One of the checks that seems to be emerging around Trump um, that's somewhat effective, at least, is the, is, is the rest of the world, people who won't go along with him. One of the interesting stories of the past um, uh, week or so is Trump saying, well, I'm not going to go to England because the embassy, too big, uh, don't like where it is. A uh, bad Obama deal wasn't an Obama deal and moved there for security reasons. But obviously, the reason he's not going to the United Kingdom is because there would be giant demonstrations and people don't want him to go to the United Kingdom. Corey, you're going to the United Kingdom. Tell us, <laughs> um, you know, you know, isn't isn't it the case? I mean, there are not a lot of places that Trump can go that aren't authoritarian where he would actually get a warm welcome. Yes, I think that's right. But the thing that startled me most this week of all of the startling things that occurred was to see a Pew poll from sometime in the last several months. So so not in the last week, but in the last couple of months that showed that Donald Trump is no more unpopular among Europeans than George W. Bush was unpopular among them in 2008. So so one of the challenges, I think, for America's closest friends is that uh, they have been saying so often that, you know, Ronald Reagan was the devil incarnate, that George W. Bush was the devil incarnate, that now that they are confronted... He's really, the really the incarnate, devil incarnate. Right. <laughs> Um, it, it's hard to amplify the message. And I think that actually illustrates what is a challenge for all of us who are the president's opponents, which is how do we calibrate our opposition to things that he does that doesn't numb um, people who don't spend all their time worrying about the problems we spend our time worrying about. And and um, in London, for example, I think the president would be very poorly received. And by the way, he should be very poorly received. Um, but it's hard to, uh, to calibrate what is dangerous about Donald Trump if you think George Bush, George W. Bush was every bit as bad, because there are really important and significant differences. Uh, where in the world do I think the president could go that he would be well-received? Not just in authoritarian countries, uh, but also the most polite political cultures. I don't think the president would be poorly received in Japan, for example. I think, I mean, people may not show up, but they're not going to be tomatoing his motorcade 
Um, China? Uh, he was well received in China, although we have that was actually the best that was state organized. It was the best reception any leader in the world has ever had in the 3000 year history of China or so we heard from the president himself. The five thousand. But by the way, I want to before we go further on this, I do want to give you credit, Corey, because when you made a reference to the thing that struck you struck you this week and then you referred to something that actually happened this week. That was kind of shocking because I assumed you would be Because <laughs> it's 100 years, right? You would say, you know, the thing that really strikes me is the parallel between the retreat from Kabul and the Battle of Gandamak in Haiti. <laughs> uh, I'll be glad to do that, David. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it brings me sort I've of to I've been getting complaints from Deep State Radio nerds about too few references to John Tyler's administration. Uh, and, and his two surviving grandchildren. Uh, this is, I believe, the, the best answer to a trivia question that there is right now. But um, uh, because John Tyler was born in the 18th century, right? And he has two surviving grandchildren who are still alive. He was so, born in the 19th, 19th century? 17th, 18th, 1790, I think he was born. Wow. Have, I, and he has two sur- – anyway, that's kind of interesting. Are, are they deep state radio listeners? Do we know? They're, they're, they are only two listeners. But um, uh, but but it does bring me to another question, which just floated into my mind as the week went by, and it it's it's related roughly to the to the to the the Battle of Gandamak and the retreat from Kabul, uh, since that's a was a catastrophe for the British in the 1840s, uh, and we are still in Afghanistan. And let me ask you this question, Rosa, since you're plugged into this world. One of the things that strikes me as really weird is Donald Trump hasn't visited our troops overseas. And, and you know, presidents tend to do that. But, I, you know, he seems, I don't know, for some reason I have this feeling that he just thinks it's, it would be too scary for him. But, but, <laughs> but, 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 but do, does that ultimately have an effect or is that just all for show? I, I, by the way, I think he did do a brief visit during the Korea trip. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. In Korea. Um, but no shithole bases overseas. I mean, I think it, It um, on the one hand, when presidents do this, they are very often doing it for the photo op, uh, and they tend to, you know, unsurprisingly, and, and not wholly unjustifiably, they tend to zoom in, uh, you know, surrounded by, you know, more armed guards than you could even imagine, and then zoom back out again. So they're 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 not exactly you know down there in the trenches uh, subjecting themselves to danger in general, um, so I don't. But I, I think I do think it can it can be symbolically important, you know, even though it is just symbolic. You know, symbols matter, and and uh, the president of the United States at least making the effort to send the message. Hey, folks, I know you are out here in danger, and even though I'm just flying in and I'm not, in fact, putting myself in any particular danger, I at least made the effort to, you know, go somewhere sort of inconvenient and take time out from my schedule and come and say hello to some of you. You know, it matters. People notice uh, when it doesn't happen. Uh, Why isn't he doing it? Well, frankly, you know, why isn't he doing three quarters of the things that we normally expect a president to do? I think he is too busy golfing. Yes, no. He he certainly he certainly devoted himself to golf with an unusual fervor. You know uh, what? I'm super happy to have him golfing, especially during crises like the false notification in Hawaii, because I fear his judgment. 
Yeah. Well, we're going to get to see his judgment. We, we've got a state of the union coming up. Uh, and I'm sure the New York Times being the New York Times with thousands of reporters worldwide planning these things out as you look forward to it, David, you've already thought through where we're going with this. You've looked beyond even the fake media awards to, you know, where 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 he can sort of stick a flag in the sand, you know, for 2018 and and actually have a positive agenda. Uh, do you? Have you thought that through? You know, I think it's the less important question is whether I've thought it through to whether or not they've thought it through. In other words, do they see the State of the Union? And, you know, your second State of the Union is in some ways more important than your first because of the first, you've just given your inaugural address. For his, it was the This American Carnage address. It was a bit of a downer. Uh, <laughs> the uh, <laughs> to, to put it mildly, uh, the then but, he didn't. There was a really big, then, big audience, big turnout on the mall. Right. So that, that, then that. he didn't address to Congress, um, which was which, which was, was an upper. Right? I mean, there was an ecstatic reaction. I think overreaction to that. that from, that's right, because it sounded incredibly normal and as if they had gone back and pulled out in thrown into a mix master previous. Um, uh, State of the Union addresses and sort of, you know, had those in. And inside the White House, according to the Michael Wolff book, they called it the Goldman speech because it was like Gary Cohn. It was, right. you know. The it, it was very traditional Republican. Right. So the question here is a year into this, does he go back and do that and then lay out a sort of post-tax cut Goldman-like scenario and talk about reducing regulation and keeping the economy going again and all that? Or does he break out of that to go uh, back to some of the themes of the campaign and the the things that we've heard in recent times, including on immigration and building the wall and, and all that? And my guess is that given the environment that he's giving this in, which is a speech where he's in front of a teleprompter, everything he hates, all the formal pomp and circumstance of all of this, that he will give something that is completely traditional and completely forgettable and that in the end of the day, we will think this is less real Donald Trump than what you hear coming out of you know his meeting with senators. Ed, what do you think? Uh, I mean, I agree with David. Uh, there'll, there'll be something on infrastructure in there, you know, if, if anything remains of um, the Bannon agenda that, you know, maybe some Democrats could sign up to its infrastructure. Uh, clearly, the decision to pivot from big tax cuts for corporations to um, big spending cuts to Social Security and Medicaid has been averted for the time being because the the midterm election results already look look like a defeat for Republicans, at least in the House. And this could turn it into a sort of a, a sweeping defeat that would include uh, the Senate. So that is unlikely to be in the State of the Union. But I agree entirely with David. He will probably give a relatively sane, relatively sort of fact-checked, um, you know, teleprompted um, State of the Union, you know, which in, in, in doesn't include spelling errors. And if it talks about the yoke of authoritarianism, it will be spelt Y-O-K-E and rather, rather than Y-O-L-K. So it'll be a relatively professional speech to which we will overreact. Ah, Trump is pivoting to adulthood in year two, and we will be wrong because later that night he will start tweeting again.
In fact, when he is accused of pivoting to normal is usually when you begin to see some of the more outlandish statements because he almost reacts to those you know, if he's hearing the normal bit in the media, he's thinking, gee, the base won't like this, and he's got to feed them something. We have just two minutes left, and I'm just you know, giving this perspective look so as over the next couple of weeks, everybody can think about this a little bit. But Rosen, Corey, what could he say that he might actually say that you would think would be a positive thing? I cannot imagine a single thing. <laughs> I repent of my sins. Yeah, I'm not sure that's one that he would actually say, though. I mean, he has proven himself to be constitutionally incapable of apologizing for anything. Even the obvious things that you could easily apologize for, he doesn't apologize for. But is there anything that he could launch or initiate, perhaps on the foreign policy side, where you would say, oh, that's, that's a good goal. I'd like to see that. Yes, I actually can. Uh, I would like to see him say that he realizes that the risk, the growing risk to the United States from North Korea's nuclear and ballistic missile programs needs to be actively discussed uh, with North Korea to reduce those risks. No, I agree. I think I think uh, uh, some statements that emphasize that he too, in fact, is interested in seeking a diplomatic solution would be would be helpful. That does have one lovely sort of side effect from it, which is, you know, if Trump sort of opens some round of talks with the North Koreans, we can get a lot more, you know, episodes of Deep State with David Sanger and Pyongyang. <laughs> have, have have you consulted with Ian here yet about what kind of of internet connection we're going to get for the Pyongyang broadcasts? You go to Pyongyang, uh, the Winter and, Olympics. We have a uh, we have a whole fleet of carrier pigeons waiting for your for your every breath. They take a while, but I, I, I want to go to cover the hundred and forty member North Korean orchestra that's going to the Olympics. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be a real highlight. For let's inspect their let's inspect their instrument cases to make sure they're actually carrying musical instruments. <laughs> well, in all likelihood, the hundred and forty orchestra will return home as an eighty person orchestra too. I mean, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it'll be no, like the Cuban baseball team. Yeah. No, you can't let the tuba defect. He's our last one. <laughs> It's the only tuba in North Korea, exactly. Well, that's something else to look forward to in the weeks ahead. Um, and we will be there for it here at Deep State Radio, wherever we may be, spread out around the world, Corey in London and, uh, you know, me back and forth between New York and Washington and David in Pyongyang and Ed in Ibiza or wherever <laughs> British people go when it's cold out. Um, <laughs> Not Ibiza. And, and, Ibiza, and Rosa walking her dog. Did your dog ever come back, Rosa, by the way? No, the dog abandoned me. It's very sad. That's very sad. Well, we hope that Rosa's Brook, Rosa Brooks's dog on the internet at least will re-engage with you. Um, and uh, we thank you all for joining us. And we'll talk to you again next week. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with 
Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.